Welcome to Beyond the Self, the podcast that's all about embracing change, finding your calling, and discovering lasting happiness. I'm your host, Destin Adote, and in today's episode, we are diving into the pages of From Strength to Strength by Arthur C. Brooks. This inspiring book is all about navigating life's transitions with grace. Even when our abilities fade and your career takes unexpected turns. Are you ready to uncover the secrets to a fulfilling life, no matter what challenges come your way? From strength to strength is the compass you've been seeking. It's a powerful reminder that happiness isn't just about your career or abilities. It is about finding your true purpose and embracing change without suffering. From Strength to Strength by Dr. Arthur C. Brooks is an inspiring book about embracing change without suffering and finding your calling in life and happiness even if your abilities fade and your career declines. Arthur C. Brooks is an American social scientist, the William Henry Bloomberg Professor of the Practice of Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School, and the Professor of Management Practice at the Harvard Business School. Prior to that, he was the President of the American Enterprise Institute for 10 years, where he held the Beth and Revenal Curry Chair in Free Enterprise. He was, he has authored 11 books, including bestsellers, Love Your Enemies and The Conservative Heart, and writes in the popular How to Build a Life column at The Atlantic. He is also the host of podcasts, How to Build a Happy Life and The Art of Happiness with Arthur Brooks. Now, this is someone with numerous accolades, someone who has accomplished quite a lot, but he has the most unconventional journey of anyone I've ever read about or heard about. He started off as a musician, well, a French horn player, touring Europe and doing amazing things with music, and he practiced well on into his 20s and as things went on he gradually hit a wall his skills started to decline and he wasn't the french horn player he was before and this caused him great pain because this was all he knew this was what he thought he would do with his life this was his forever thing and he discovered that he couldn't do it forever Understanding this led to a conversation. All of this led to a conversation he overheard on a plane. He was on a plane and he overheard this couple talking. And the man was, you know, talking about how unfulfilled his life has been. And, you know, from what he could overhear, he, he sensed that this was probably a man who hadn't accomplished his dreams, who had done maybe work he didn't like and, you know, maybe didn't graduate college and, you know, and had just, you know, had an unfulfilled life. And, you know, it 
it went on throughout the journey and the plane was you know landing and everyone's going about their journeys again and the pilot you know came came out to greet them and the pilot just stared right through Arthur and looked right at the man and just like <laughs> just moved to him and it's like sir you are the reason why I do what I do you are my hero and this man was beaming ear to ear and with that realization and from the previous experience of Arthur's decline in his music career he understood that he did not want to be this man because this man was a supremely accomplished man according to Arthur someone who everyone knew I mean but I mean he he didn't share but I like to think he was someone we probably like and have probably idolized but this was someone who was gravely unsatisfied with what they had done with their lives understanding that your professional trajectory would not last forever was what Arthur dis- discovered. In 1971, Cattell published a book entitled Abilities, Their Structure, Growth and Action. In it, he posited that there were two types of intelligence that people possess, but at greater abundance in different points in their life. The first is fluid intelligence, which Cattell defined as the ability to reason, think flexibly, and solve novel problems. It is what we commonly think of as raw smarts, and researchers find that it is associated with both reading and mathematical ability. Innovators typically have an abundance of fluid intelligence. Cattell, who specialized in intelligence testing, observed that it was highest relatively early in adulthood and diminished rapidly starting in one's 30s and 40s. Now, let's talk about Charles Darwin, the naturalist extraordinaire, the botanist and biologist. In 1831, at the age of 22, he was invited to join the voyage of the Beagle, a scientific sailing investigation around the world. And this was, I mean, against his parents' wishes. I mean, they, they wanted him to follow suit on the family line, be a clergyman. And Charles wasn't having any of that. For the next five years aboard the ship, he collected exotic sam- plants and animal samples sending them back to England to the fascination of scientists and general public. Aboard this vessel, he was able to connect with the natural world in ways no one has ever had. He was able to understand and classify the chaos we all thought was the natural world, giving it some structure and order. And with this, he was able to posit the theory of evolution, classify natural things, and animals into different substratas that has made life easy and for numerous scientists and laid the foundation. But Darwin hit a block. At this point, however, you know, Darwin's work starts just stagnated creatively. He hit a wall in his research 
and could not make new breakthroughs. Around the same time, a Czech monk by the name of Gregory Mendel discovered what Darwin needed to continue his work. The theory of genetics. Unfortunately, Mendel's work was published in an obscure German academic journal and Darwin never saw it. I mean, and in any case, Darwin, if we remember, had been a, such an unmotivated student, did not have the mathematical or language skills to even understand it. I mean, despite his writing numerous books later in life, his work didn't really break numerous ground. It became repetitive and he died relatively unsatisfied. I'd like to talk about another person, Paul Dirac. He is the Nobel Prize winning physicist who won the prize when he was 31. He developed a general theory of quantum field, the area in which he earned his PhD at Cambridge at the age of 24. Wow. I mean, this... I mean, this was someone who was truly extraordinary, developing a theory at age 24 and winning a Nobel Prize at age 31. This is, this is great stuff. But he wrote a poem about the curse of a physicist, and here are the last two lines of the poem. He is better dead than living still when once he has passed his 30th year. Let's, let's read that again for emphasis. He is better dead than living still when once he has passed his 30th year. Benjamin Jones, a professor of strategy and entrepreneurship at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University, has spent years studying when people are most likely to make prize-winning scientific discoveries and key inventions. Looking at major inventors and Nobel Prize winners going back more than a century, Jones finds that the most common age for a great discovery is one's late 30s. I mean, Dirac obviously aware of this, of kind of study like this. I mean, I'm sure that's what raised alarms and caused him to write that poem. He shows that the likelihood of a major discovery increases steadily through one's 20s and 30s and then declines dramatically through one's 40s, 50s and 60s. I mean, of course, they are outliers, of course. But the probability of producing a major innovation at 70 is approximately equal to what it was at age 20, about zero. For writers, decline sets in about... 40-45. Financial professionals reach peak performance between ages 36 and 40. Or take doctors. They appear to peak in their 30s with steep drop-offs in skill as the years pass. One recent Canadian study looked at 80% of the country's anesthesiologists and patient litigation against them over a 10-year period. The researchers found that physicians over 65 are 50% more likely than younger doctors under 51 at being found at fault for malpractice. 
Entrepreneurs are an interesting case when it comes to PKH. Tech founders often earn a vast fame and fortune in their 20s, but many are in creative decline by age 30. The Harvard Business Review has reported that founders of enterprises backed with a billion dollars or more in venture capital tend to cluster in the 20 to 34 age range. Peak performance is 30 to 44 for equipment service engineers and office workers. It is 45 to 54 for semi-skilled assembly workers and mail sorters. The age-related decline among air traffic controllers is so sharp and the consequences of decline-related errors so dire that the mandatory retirement age is 56. These abilities that appear later in life favor some specific professions. For example, theoretical mathematicians tend to peak and decline early. But applied mathematicians who use mathematics, for example, to solve actual problems in business, peak much later because they specialize in combing and using ideas that already exist, a skill that favors older people. Or take historians the quintessential assemblers of existing facts and ideas. Weirdly, they all fall way out of typical range for decline, peaking 39.7 years after career inception on average. Think what this implies. Say you tend to pursue a career as a professional historian and finish your PhD at 32. The bad news is that in your 50s, you're still pretty wet behind the ears. But here's the good news. At age 72, you still have half of your work to go. I mean, better take care of your health so you can write your best books into your 80s. If you take this facts as being random, you get very little actionable strategy for life. I mean, beyond perhaps becoming a competitive Scrabble player or working on a PhD in history, it isn't random. However, not at all. In the late 1960s, a psychologist, British psychologist named Raymond Cattell, who we met earlier, set out about finding an explanation for why this happens. He found the answer, and that answer can defeat the Strava's curse and change your life. In his research into the types of intelligence, which are fluid and crystallized intelligence, fluid intelligence, which Cattell defined as the ability to reason, think flexibly, and solve novel problems, well, this aids our physicists. But what aids our special historians is the crystallized intelligence that comes from information gathered over a long period of time that is synthesized to form incredible insights. This process takes time, which is why historians peak later in life. I would like to talk about someone who did it right. I would like to talk about, no, not that, Johann Sebastian Bach. Born in 1685 to a long line of prominent musicians in central Germany, Johann Sebastian Bach quickly distinguished himself as a musical genius. In his lifetime, he published more than a thousand compositions 
for all available instrumentations of his day. The greatest cantatas for orchestra and chorus ever written seem to follow his pen by the dozens. His concerti are compositionally perfect. His piano works simple and elegant. Well, Bach's prodigious output wasn't just limited music, by the way. He fathered 20 children, seven by his beloved first wife, Maria Barbara, who tragically died at 35, and 13 more with a second wife, <laughs> busy man, Anna Magdalena. Only 10 of Bach's children lived to adulthood. But these, these included four composers who went on to attain significant fame in their own right. The greatest of these was Carl Philippe Emanuel, known as CPE, to the generations that followed. Johann Sebastian Bach's music, musical vernacular was the High Baroque. Earlier in his career, he considered by many to be the finest composer in his style ever to have lived. Commissions rolled in, royalty sought him out, specifically Prince Leopold of Anhalt Korten. Younger composers emulated his style. He lived in increasing prominence with his large and beloved family. But his fame and glory didn't last. In no small part because his career was overtaken by musical events that ushered in by a young up-and-comer who kicked him out the limelight by rendering his high baroque as obsolete as disco. That usurper was none other than Johann Sebastian's own son, plot twist, Carl Philipp Emanuel. Early on, Carl Philipp Emanuel showed the same musical gifts his father had. As he developed, he mastered the Baroque idiom, but was more fascinated with a newfangled style, classical style, music. What, it was what everyone wanted to hear. Carl Philipp Emanuel rose with popularity of the musical, classical musical style. Meanwhile, Baroque music became regarded as old-fashioned and stuffy, along with the composers, including Johann Sebastian, who would not or could not write a new style. And just like that, Carl Philipp Emanuel displaced Johann Sebastian as the family's musical celebrity. For the last decades of Johann Sebastian's life and the century afterward, Carl Philipp Emanuel was considered the greatest of the backs. Joseph Hayden and Ludwig van Beethoven admired Carl Philipp Emanuel and collected his music. Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart himself said, Bach is the father and we are the children. Referring to, I mean, Carl Philipp Emanuel, not Johann Sebastian. Johann Sebastian back, you know, being the father could, you know, have easily become embittered like Darwin, you know, feeling left behind by the musical cognoscenti, you know, after a career at the forefront. Well, instead, he took pride in his son's originality and redesigned his own life. 
moving from you know musical innovator to master teacher he spent the last 10 years of his life working on among other projects the kunst der fugue the art of the fugue a collection of fugues and canons based on a single theme intended to teach the compositional techniques of the baroque the art of the fugue was written as a kind of textbook 100 years after bach's death it was rediscovered and began to be performed in public today it is common to hear in concerts i mean imagine a textbook so beautiful that it is considered a work of literature or even poetry that's the greatness of johann sebastian bach but just as impressive a feat as this was his personal resiliency he experienced professional decline as a musical innovator far from frustration and depression he finished out his life happy a happy father and reinvented himself as a teacher johann sebastian died working on his master text literally the manuscript for his contrapuntus 14 from the art of the fugue stops mid measure and none other than carl philip emanuel added these words some years later über diese fuge ist der verfasse gestorben meaning at the point in the fuge the composer died Bach understood something both Darwin and Dirac didn't understand. Inasmuch as decline is not something he looked forward to, he handled it graciously, and today he's one of the composers who is remembered, I mean not his son, because he understood what he needed to do when the time came. And centuries later, his music is still being played in concert halls. Decline is unavoidable. period but aging isn't all bad news and i'm not you know talking about grandkids and a condo in sarasota i mean although that's got to be nice in fact there are some specific ways in which we naturally get smarter and more skillful the trick to improving as we age is to understand develop and practice these new strengths Cicero believed three things about older age. First, that it should be dedicated to service, not goofing off. Second, our greatest gift later in life is wisdom, in which learning and thought create a world view that can enrich others. Third, our natural ability at this point is counsel, mentoring, advising and teaching others in a way that goes that doesn't really amass any you know worldly rewards you know money power prestige sarah didn't just give good advice by the way he lived it and died practicing it and you know this would give us some understanding about arthur's career he went on from being heading the one of the biggest think tanks in washington dc you know having political affiliations big connections well on his way to doing you know some great things but he understood that as the climb was coming he was getting older so he did as Cicero did they didn't dedicate his time to goofing off 
dedicated it to giving back his wisdom, which is why he's a professor at Harvard, you know, teaching the next generation, you know, guiding them, improving them through his guided insight in life. You know, Cicero understood the principles needed to ensure that even when our career declines and things change radically, we can find immense purpose and meaning still in our lives. Now, it will be hard to accept that one day our skills will falter and we might not be needed anymore. You know, although that is a glum way of looking at it, it is just like any problem. Reframing it brings other possibilities, which is what Arthur Brooks helps us to do. He recounted a time when he went fishing as a kid, and he tried and tried to catch a fish, and he couldn't. Then an older man, a more experienced fisherman from the area met him, and he explained that he was not catching anything. And the man said, you have to wait for the falling tide. When the tide is going out fast, you know, although it seems counterintuitive, the man explained, because you see the water rushing out and assume the fish should be going out as well, right? Well, however, this is when the plankton and the bait fish are stirred up, you know, shaken in the water, making the game fish go crazy, looking to bite anything and everything, said the man. And, you know, after their big roundup, you know, they, they call, they fetch, they fetch the big, big, big one. The older man, you know, feeling all philosophical, decided to drop one last gem. He said, kid, there's only one mistake you can make during a fallen time. Well, not having your line in the water. He adds this memory as a way to give an understanding of the changes that occur as time goes on and our professional decline beckons. He said, there is a falling tide to life, the transition from fluid to crystallized intelligence. This is an intensely productive and fertile period. It is when you jump from one curve to the other, when you face your success addiction, when you chip away the inessential parts of life, when you ponder your death, when you build your relationships. Now, unfortunately, the falling tide of your life is also incredibly scary and difficult. It may even feel like some sort of midlife crisis. It might feel like everything you've worked for is rushing away. Seeing it as a tragedy can be easier than seeing it as an opportunity. But understanding that we get more meaning from this period than we did earlier would be immensely satisfying for us all. Which is why I implore you to also go on this transcendent experience with me and read this book. He also has another book that is out and he co-wrote it with the dearest Oprah Winfrey titled How to Build the Life You Want. So. Do check it out. And that's a wrap for today's episode of Beyond the Self. We've journeyed through From Strength to Strength by Arthur C. Brooks. 
and I hope you're leaving with newfound insights and inspiration to embrace your inner potential and make a difference in the world and to not be afraid of the climb for it presents an opportunity one that we should grab with open arms remember it's not just about self-help it's about helping others and growing together let's continue to create ripples of value in our lives and communities if you enjoyed today's episode please consider subscribing leaving a review and sharing it with your friends and family your support means the world to us stay tuned for more collective wisdom insight and personal stories in the episodes to come until next time keep embracing the power of giving and growing I'm Destinado Tate, and this is Beyond the Self. Thank you for joining me on this fascinating journey.